Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to talk about something that uh, I've been quite interested in for a while, uh, mostly just because I've, I've recently moved to higher altitude, but we're going to talk about altitude training and how it can affect you and the physiological changes as well as some of the psychological changes that you go through. So for my own personal story, I've, I've alluded to it before, but I recently came from very close to sea level. So about, I think, 250 to 300 meters is roughly where southern Ontario is sitting. Um, now I've moved up to about 1,200 to 1,300 meters at uh, elevation in in Calgary, and I've actually done a little bit of training up to 2,000 meters on the Highwood Pass, which is uh, which is actually the highest paved pass in Ontario, or sorry, in Canada. Um, and I really noticed the altitude there, so I thought this is something super topical to talk about, and I've got a little bit of anecdotal experience now. Uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great starter uh, to our conversation. And uh, sort of conceptually, we talked about splitting this conversation into two parts. The first uh, being um, the category of folks who either live at altitude and then are going to be training or racing uh, closer to sea level or the more common opposite uh, scenario where folks are living at sea level or close to sea level and then they are going to be either doing a, a higher altitude training camp or uh, a race at higher altitude. So this is, you know, as I said, this is Andrew's scenario, um, and we should talk about what the the physiological effects uh, of that move are, and uh, sort of what to expect from um, from your performance and how to adjust your performance to deal with the the lower oxygen saturation, obviously at altitude. The second part will be uh, we'll touch on. Uh, interventions for folks who who perhaps live at sea level but want to get a little bit of a fitness boost and uh, altitude or oxygen saturation could be a variable that you manipulate in order to achieve um, some kind of desired fitness outcome. So that'll be part two of our discussion. One of the things that was really driving me towards this conversation is uh, my my own personal situation, again, acts as a really good case study because in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be traveling down to close to sea level in Germany for Eurobike, and that will give me an opportunity to do some running and training, um, just going from a very quick change of about the 1,200-1,300 meter mark down to closer to sea level so I can see back-to-back what the gains are in, in my run pace. Um, as well, I'm racing at uh, Ironman Maryland at the end of September, <clears throat> and that one—that's about as close to sea level as you can get. It's uh, the swim is in one of the the brackish uh, rivers feeding into the uh, into the Atlantic, and yeah, uh, it'll be mostly at two to three meters above sea level. So I figure that's that's about as close as you can get. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's jump right into the um, uh, to this part one of the conversation. Uh, so as you, as everyone, I'm sure uh, appreciates, as uh, you go up in altitude, the air density decreases because there's you know the atmosphere is thinner up there, and uh, as a result, uh, the relevant component of that density of that air density is of course that the oxygen concentration. Um, drops. And so you are breathing air that has 
less oxygen in it at altitude. And that, given uh, given how aerobic our sports are, and we've talked about this quite a bit um, during our metabolism episode and uh, recently my conversation with uh, Sebastian Weber, um, that drop in oxygen certainly carries a cost in, uh, in endurance performance. So I ran some numbers using uh, one of the several available and free online calculators for this in Andrew's case. So when Andrew was living in southern Ontario at, uh, we'll call it sea level, even though it's a, probably a little bit above sea level, uh, up to 1,300 meters. And uh, Andrew sent me his uh, his FTP at sea level was, uh, he told me it was 275 watts. You're going to be the guinea pig in this one, Andrew. <laughs> Everyone knows my numbers now. Yes, yeah, there's you got nothing to hide. Uh, so no he secrets. went up to, to <laughs> no secrets. When he went up to thirteen hundred meters, uh, he would have suffered roughly a twenty watt loss. Now, does that jive with what you experience in training? I would say so. Um, initially, I found that when I was doing training, my heart rate was through the roof, and just the rate of perceived exertion for known kind of recovery interval powers, uh, it was much higher feeling of exertion. Um, but that did come down over time as I acclimated. But I would say 20 watts is, is probably pretty close. So 20 watts would be what these, uh, this is based on uh, the Cycling Power Lab uh, altitude calculator, and I'll link to that in our show notes. Um, and they're using uh, a study by Bassett from 99 to come up with these numbers. The 20 watt drop that I mentioned would be for someone who is unacclimated. Um, so this is somebody who just you know went up to altitude and uh, got on a bike. Um, and then if you were acclimated, which uh, we can talk about how long that takes, um, then that number actually drops down to about 12 watts. So there is um, there is a good you know 40 percent cost reduction in in becoming uh, altitude adapted. So one of the things that obviously Andrew has done since he's been in uh, in uh, Calgary for quite some time is now he's fully altitude adapted. And uh, so the difference between his sea level power and his uh, power at altitude at 1300 meters is now a lot smaller. Yeah, and I did notice that um, it, it started off gradually, and I got probably 90% of the adaptation um, within the first two weeks, but then just recently I felt a lot more comfortable where my body's actually getting used to it as opposed to just processing the oxygen differently. Um, so it, it, it feels comfortable now. It feels pretty normal, <clears throat> but I do notice a few things here and there, and we'll touch on it a little bit later once we get into the specifics, but I still do notice it occasionally. For sure, some of the effects of uh, of altitude again, um, obviously with the uh, the lower partial pressure of oxygen in the atmosphere, you're going to end up with lower uh, muscle and brain oxygenation. So one of the things that you mentioned that's really that's really critical is that you feel more comfortable now, and um, this is your system getting used to the reduced cerebral oxygenation. <clears throat> Excuse me, and that's of course the um, the uh, the amount of oxygen that's in your brain. So um, anytime you reduce that oxygenation, you uh, impair cognitive function. And one of the important pieces here is that um, as you impair cognitive function, your perceived effort goes way up. And this is something that you pointed out earlier on, that not only were you, you know, physiologically you were struggling, you were also struggling mentally or psychologically. And there's a very direct link there um, with the l lower oxygen concentration in your brain 
and your uh, you know your the, your ride on the struggle bus, your your higher than <laughs> expected uh, rate of perceived exertion. And the other thing psychologically too is it's just frustrating because you're chasing after this number that you think, okay, this used to be easy. Why can't I do it now? So it it really you get inside your own head. And I haven't seen any papers that specifically talk about this, but I think that's actually a pretty big part of the the impact as well is just your own perception of your training. So this might actually be a case for training by feel rather than training by the numbers. Right. Or understanding, um, I would make the counter case that if you kind of go into a, a substantial change in altitude like you did with your eyes fully open and knowing that you can expect you know, a specific magnitude of change, uh, being prepared for that change and just sort of, you know, again, checking your ego and then adjusting all of your targets down by uh, whatever the uh, whatever the expected delta in, say, your critical power or your VO2 max power would be. I think the really challenging thing would be coming up to altitude. So the Calgary 70.3 was over the weekend. And aside from having terrible weather, if if I were to travel here for the weekend and came from sea level, um, that would have been psychologically devastating because all of a sudden, uh, if you don't have the time to properly acclimate, you're now faced with this position where you're in race mode, you're competitive and the adrenaline's going and you see these numbers that are lower than expected. And, uh, that would just really get inside most people's heads. I think even if you know, going in that you should expect lower performance, it's still tough. It's a tough pill to swallow. A hundred percent. But then I'll, I'll call your attention to what you, you, you said a couple episodes ago that egos don't win races. Yeah, <laughs> very true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the other kind of uh, kind of curious side effect is uh, of, of racing or training at altitude, and this applies mostly to the bike, is that at lower um, at altitude, obviously you have lower air pressure, and lower air pressure affects aerodynamics. And you know you're the you're the aerodynamics expert in the room, but uh, we can uh, we can look at how much of an aerodynamic advantage you gain um, when you're racing or riding at altitude. And actually, this um, altitude power calculator from Cycling Power Lab, as I mentioned, using earlier, it has an aerodynamic component. So you can you can plunk in your CDA. Um, and so let's use, let's, let's do this analysis. Um, uh, Andrew CDA, what 0.25 ish? Yeah. 0.23 to 0.25. I'd like to think 0.23, okay. but I think 0.25 is maybe more realistic. Let's do, let's do 0.25 just for, just for sake of, uh, of utility. And then, um, uh, or to be conservative, let's say. And so we said that uh, if Andrew is uh, acclimated, he's losing about 12 Watts off, off of his critical power or his FTP. But he is going to be gaining, according to this calculator, and Andrew, you can pr- maybe check my math later, um, <laughs> he's going to be gaining upwards of 40 watts of aerodynamic savings at that altitude, which to me sounds a little bit high. So I kind of want to double check that. But um, that's what uh, that's what this calculator puts out. I, I would actually agree with that because um, I think we're at around 80% of the density of sea level. So density is what really drives the aerodynamic drag. Um, so we've got, uh, yeah, 80% of the sea level density, which means the drag is going to go down by about 20% for given speed. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so we're only losing about 12, yeah, 12% or 12 Watts, which is what 5%. So, um, yep. somewhere around there. And then that, uh, that would actually allow you to go faster at this altitude. Exactly. And there's a lot of a lot of evidence to to prove that as well because most of the hour records have been set at places like Mexico City which is around 
I think 3000 meters, 2,500 meters, which, um, is a pretty high altitude. And like, when you get to those altitudes, you feel it, but the drag is so much lower that you hit this, um, this optimum altitude. And then as you continue to go up, the drag reduction becomes less significant, but the power reduction right. becomes much more significant and you, you start to taper off and lose performance. So that's a super interesting observation too. So perhaps those people coming up from sea level, sure they're uh, they're not able to hold the, the the right kind of wattage. And if they know this, and if they're prepared for it, and they uh, modify their race plan accordingly, um, they you know may have to again check that ego, but hold a, a reduced wattage. They they will likely still end up with a faster bike split than they would have. At, um, at training elevations at sea level. Now, of course, when it comes to the run where aerodynamics are not unimportant, but much less important, uh, then you, you know, then you're, then you're kind of out of, out of luck. Yeah. You're on your own there. Yeah. <laughs> Same with swimming. Same with swimming. Absolutely. Yeah. The wa water density doesn't change very much with altitude, sadly. Not that I know of. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite an interesting discussion about this optimization. Um, but when people are looking at their whole training programs, they, they try to further optimize. So there's these concepts of uh, live low and train high and live high and train low, where you're spending most of your time at a given altitude to force adaptations. And then you, you train in the opposite altitude condition for various reasons. So you hear about this quite often with, with uh, pro cyclists. And I think Colombians are well known for this because they typically live at, uh, at high altitudes. Um, but they'll come down to a lower altitude to, to actually perform their training. So I think critical to this part of the discussion is, is just exploring the mechanism for why, why you actually get more power at low altitudes and how acclimating to higher altitudes can, can help you. Right. So um, the the key thing to understand, of course, is that oxygen is the is the the special sauce here. Um, as we've talked about on on previous episodes, our sport is uh, overwhelmingly aerobic, and I, by our sport, I mean you know any really any endurance sport: swimming, cycling, running. Some more so than others, um, but the overwhelming majority of the energy production that goes into fueling your race. Um, happens in the presence of oxygen. So oxygen is the magic molecule that makes you go. So what happens when, uh, when you re restrict the amount of oxygen that you have available to you? So let's look at uh, first at uh, live low and train high, where the idea is you live at, you know, whatever your altitude is, generally fairly close to sea level. That's where the most major population centers are. Uh, but then you train high, and how you go about doing that is you either uh, wear um, an oxygen uh, a mask that restricts the concentration of oxygen. So you're not physically changing the pressure of the air that you're breathing, but you are reducing the concentration of oxygen in that air. Uh, and option two is you're in a facility that has uh, either a tent or a whole room that has a, um, a reduced uh, oxygen saturation. So before I launch too much further into this, um, I will I have to say that I'm not an expert in uh, in altitude training. Uh, I've certainly done a little bit of reading, but uh, compared to you know topics like metabolism, I feel that I'm on less solid ground. Uh, part of that is because there's probably a little bit less research into well, there's certainly less research into altitude training than there is in you know the impacts of training on metabolism where. Pretty much most of the <laughs> most of the uh, endurance uh, science has been, um, but uh, yeah, 
that's my disclaimer is that I'm not an expert. <laughs> and if you are that expert, uh, get in touch with us and uh, we'd love to have you on the show. Well, I, I was just going to say, I'd like to say the same thing as well, that I'm not an expert. So what I'm, you know, what we say after this point, there could be some mistakes in there. So if, if anyone hears anything that's a, an obvious omission, feel free to point it out. Um, egos don't win races and egos don't maintain podcasts, I guess. So we're happy to hear uh, any corrections. 100%, especially, you know, podcasts that uh, build themselves as evidence based. So if you've got evidence to the contrary of anything that we say, let us have it. So uh, live low, train high. So this is uh, this would be a prime example of somebody living at, uh, you know, uh, sea level or close and then uh, training in an environment with reduced oxygen saturation. Um, the studies on this kind of manipulation uh, of the environmental variables are not super robust in my experience. And the only studies that I've seen that have uh, conclusive evidence of efficacy, so of, of you know being useful, this intervention being useful, are on what the, the geeks call repeated sprint performance. So this is something, uh, to give you an idea, these are uh, bouts of intervals that are, let's say, range from 10 to 30 seconds or thereabouts, and they are very high intensity. Um, and so this would be something that uh, as endurance athletes, we would not do too often, but we might do a little bit to stimulate some neuromuscular adaptation or train for very specific races. Um, but this is relevant more for, uh, let's say, team sports, right? So people like so football or, or soccer or um, um, you know, basketball, where you have very quick, rapid accelerations uh, that don't last very long. And the mechanism for this action is, um, and, and I refer you guys back to the, our last episode with uh, Sebastian. Actually, by the time this comes out, it won't be our last episode. But let's say um, episode 13 with Sebastian Weber of Enside, where he talked about the interplay between the aerobic uh, metabolism and the glycolytic metabolism on energy generation. So in a uh, hypoxic state, a low oxygen state, your body, in order to produce energy to do its thing, to turn the pedals or to run, relies more heavily on the glycolytic uh, metabolism. And the reason for that is very simple. It's because you are now oxygen restricted. So you have less oxygen to drive the aerobic metabolism. You know, aerobic metabolism, again, obviously uh, relies very heavily on the presence and uh, sufficiency of oxygen. Uh, so in the absence of oxygen, you now rely more on the glycolytic metabolism. So as a result, if you are living low and training high, you are improving that glycolytic metabolism. So that is, there is definitely good evidence that glycolytic metabolism improves. Now the question is, is that useful? And the answer, in my opinion, the answer to that question is if you are a sprint athlete or if you're uh, competing in a sport where sprint performance is incredibly important. Um, so, you know, we could see maybe uh, certainly some track athletes, both cycling and running. Uh, where the glycolytic metabolism plays a huge role, um, then this kind of intervention could have uh, useful useful effects. Uh, but if you're an endurance athlete in the vein of, let's say, you know your your events are, you know, I'm going to pick a number here, but like five minutes and longer, uh, but certainly twenty, you know, fifteen twenty minutes and longer, where you're overwhelmingly aerobic, you know, to the tune of more than ninety percent of your energy metabolism comes uh, from the uh, aerobic cycle. Um, for 20 minute athletes and for Ironman or, you know, marathoners or, you know, long, long multi-hour events, you're talking about 
you know, 99, 98% of your potentially of your energy coming from the aerobic cycle, then improving your glycolytic metabolism can actually have a negative effect. And again, I won't dwell too much on it because we have a really great episode with Sebastian on this topic. Um, but um, I would say that living low and training high for strictly endurance athletes may not be a super useful way to train. That's really interesting about the the shift in balance towards the glycolytic metabolism. Um, I hadn't thought of that, but that's yeah, a very useful insight to that. Uh, but I agree the the general consensus I've seen is that it's not particularly useful for at least our use case. Uh, and the other evidence I found is you see these um, uh, breathing restriction masks masks that. Uh, they kind of look like the the Bane mask from Batman. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I found a paper specifically dealing with the efficacy of these masks, and basically it called them out. A lot of their claims is kind of you know on the BS side. So they they said there's no real statistically significant improvement in VO2 max um, and things like that. Where it did have an improvement though was training your your breathing muscles. So yes. it, it improved your ventilatory threshold and your ability to fill your lungs. Uh, but I think the the benefits for that are mostly with shorter, more intense actions, similar to what you were saying with the the metabolism training. Um, so where you're you're having to breathe to your full extent, where you're not uh, limited by, I guess the um, uh, just the ability to uh, your muscular ability as much. So. Yeah, that's an interesting topic. And uh, I think it's something that, again, I'm really certainly not an expert in respiratory training, but there is, I have heard anecdotally that there are um, substantial benefits to this. Now, I'm skeptical, but uh, I would love to learn more about this. And you're absolutely right. What um, A breathing restriction mask is definitely not the same thing as hypoxic training, uh, where hypoxic training is literally the reduction of oxygen, and breathing restriction masks are the reduction of the flow rate of air, which of course includes oxygen, into your lungs. And um, you're right that there is there is an effect on um, the there there is a training effect on the respiratory muscles, and for some people that could be something that's useful because for for some people their their respiratory muscles could be a limiter to their performance. Um, and there is, you know, the, the breathing muscles fatigue just like all other muscles do. So there could be some kind of, um, you know, a, fat a fatigue case to, to be made that if you're, you know, you're starting to, your, your respiratory muscles fatigue to the point where they are no longer super efficient at actually drawing breath. Um, and this could be over short intense events or even potentially longer, very submaximal events. Then you might not be operating at, uh, at your peak uh, say metabolic efficiency. So there might be a case for breathing restriction, but I don't know. And if you're an expert in this, we'd, I, I personally would love to, ha to have a conversation. So just uh, throwing some numbers in there, purely from a fluid mechanic standpoint, if we're looking at the amount of pressure you can develop, differential pressure you can develop by breathing, it's on the order of about half a PSI or five to seven KPA, which is about five to 7% of atmospheric pressure. So at the absolute highest level, um, if you're breathing as hard as you can, you're going to get that five to seven percent reduction in density. But um, it's oh, wow. it's okay. nowhere near what you can uh, what you can accomplish by going to higher altitudes. So, and that would be just at the limit of what you can actually draw into your lungs. And I think trying to train at that point would be 
uncomfortable to borderline panic inducing. <laughs> so just basically the inability to breathe. So I don't, I don't see that as being beneficial for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I, I, again, I, I agree with you. I've never, I haven't seen any evidence that it is, uh, but if someone has it, I want to see it. <laughs> yeah. They do seem to be fairly popular though. You do see them occasionally at gyms and, uh, and things like that. But yeah, I, I don't fully agree that they're all that useful. Uh, let's jump to the other the other um, intervention that we can uh, we can employ, and that is live high, train low. Um, a couple of ways you can do that. The kind of au naturel method would be to go to altitude and uh, train where train at a lower altitude. So this is commonly done in places, I believe, like Boulder, um, where you can you know Boulder is quite high mm-hmm. up in the mountains. I don't know the altitude. Um, but uh, then you're able to ride down the mountain passes and then ride at much closer to sea level or run much closer to sea level uh, and do your training that way. So the idea there is that unlike live low, train high, when you are living high, you are obviously spending the vast majority of your time high uh, or at high altitude. And uh, that gives your body (laughs) the time to do sort of what Andrew's body has done to acclimate to altitude. And so the the most obvious acclimation is, um, and Andrew touched on this, is the uh, the increase in the concentration of red blood cells in the blood. And obviously red blood cells are the oxygen carrying um, unit in the blood. And they so a higher concentration of red blood cells is very much in your favor. And that happens when you spend considerable amounts of time at that hypoxic in that hypoxic environment that's just your body's response to well a, a lower availability of oxygen so the actual mechanism for this happening is your body triggering the release of more epo or let's see if i can say this uh erythropoietin i hate this word <laughs> so it's it's basically the um I don't know, is it a hormone, a protein that uh, uh, triggers the production of red blood cells from the bone marrow? Um, so the the actual production of red blood cells, um, from what I read, takes around five to seven days. So that's one of the reasons that this uh, adaptation takes a finite amount of time. Um, so you've got this five to seven day period where your body's saying, whoa, <laughs> what's going on here? Uh, let's get some more EPO into the bloodstream and then, uh, and then just have those extra red blood cells. The disadvantage is uh, that your hematocrit goes up, which is your percentage of red blood cells in your your blood, uh, which increases viscosity, which um, it's got an energetic cost. So this is why your body tries to minimize the production. It tries to figure out what it actually requires and then optimize that for the amount of uh, load that's on it consistently. So your body's always trying to optimize itself. When you go to these higher altitudes, your body's saying, okay, I need more red blood cells to transfer the oxygen out of the air because there's not as much availability. Um, but as I mentioned, the uh, the higher hematocrit levels are actually, they can be dangerous if they go too high um, because your viscosity of your blood goes up and it can increase clotting. It can cause, uh, in extreme cases, it can cause very high blood pressure and strokes and things like that. So that's one of the reasons, aside from the unfairness. It's one of the reasons that doping is, uh, EPO doping or um, blood transfusions are, are, or can be very dangerous. If you go to an extreme, you're basically pumping maple syrup through your, your veins. Uh, so that's as delicious as it sounds, it's not that good of a solution. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a vampire, maybe. 
that's my kind of vampire. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, that's a that's a great explanation, Andrew. Um, I didn't realize that there was that uh, that added cost of uh, uh, the physiological cost of a higher blood viscosity, and that makes a perf- that makes perfect sense because you know your body is always trying to find homeostasis in its you know current environment and uh, to cope with its current state of physiological and, and psychological stress. So you know stress goes up as you train more. You make more red blood cells. You go up to altitude. Your body needs, you know, the the environment changes. You make more red blood cells. But at lower altitude, where you don't need as much, or if you're not training as much, then why make the heart work harder with higher viscosity fluid to pump? Um, let's keep those blood cells blood cell levels lower. That's uh, that's really cool. What was really interesting, and we'll have to post this paper, but I found a study that it looked at actually elite athletes, so people who were, um, I think they were competing at like the USA track national level, so like very good athletes, and they were categorized as either responders or non-responders, and there was a significant difference in performance between the two, which was, I thought, really cool. So you would normally associate someone who's athletic as just being generally responsive to these things, but there was a fair number of high level of athletes. They still produce more EPO, but their bodies didn't actually produce that much more in the way of red blood cell volume, um, which I thought was really interesting. So, so they were responders to altitude or responders to EPO specifically? Uh, it was under the stimulus of altitude, um, but they both produced EPO. Uh, one, the, the responders produced slightly more, um, but it was still a significant increase. I think it was like 45 or 50% for the responders versus 35% on average for the non-responders. Um, so you have that pretty significant increase in EPO, but the red blood cell mm-hmm. count basically didn't change for the non-responders or changed to a very small extent that didn't improve performance. Well, that's, uh, that's fascinating. And that goes, I mean, that, that speaks to the fact that even though we understand genetics a lot better than we, we used to, and look, the genomes, the genome has been mapped, um, but there's so many, so many factors and so much, so much interplay within, within the genes, the way that they, uh, the way that they're expressed that we still don't quite get. Oh yeah, that's that's a whole other well, not just episode topic, but that's the topic of many people's lifetimes of cumulative research, just to oh, figure that sure. stuff out. If we can just jump back to the live high, train low um, yeah. case, uh, so we 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 spend a little bit of time talking about why living high. Um, may be effective if you're one of those high responders. So then what happens when you go to train low? Uh, Now you have a higher concentration of uh, hematocrit uh, or higher hematocrit, higher concentration of red blood cells. And now you're able to do more work at, uh, at that lower altitude. And so what that does is it then kicks in all of these um, all of these uh, hormones and uh, transport proteins that you need to get better. So for instance, obviously, if, as we talked about in the very beginning, if you're acclimated to altitude, then you go down closer to sea level, your, um, your let's say, critical power will go up or your critical pace for running will go up. And when that happens, you're now able to, uh, or in order for that to happen, you are now pushing more oxygen through your through your system, both the cardiorespiratory system and the muscular system, um, and so the the proteins and um, the uh, hormones that are responsible for that whole metabolic cycle that we talked about a couple episodes back, they have to do more work. They have to do more stuff. So when you when they have to do more stuff, that is uh, an excess load that's placed on them, and then of course that um, homeostatic response from your body is to do it better 
you know, whether it's create more transport proteins or to increase the capillary density so that the blood supply is a little bit better, or it's to increase the mitochondrial density in the in the muscle cells themselves to improve that aerobic metabolism because now oh look we've got more availability of oxygenated blood let's use it in order to use it here's what we need to do um, so that is the that is the fitness bump that you get by training low when you have um, you know somewhat abnormally high levels of red blood cells from living high so I haven't actually been down to low altitude since being here for a while. But uh, Scott Cooper, who we talked to a few episodes back, um, he was saying, basically in his words, he said, you feel like a monster when you go and <laughs> run at uh, low altitude because all of a sudden for a given pace, your your effort is so much lower and your heart rate is lower and everything just feels better and stronger. Uh, so not only do you perform better, but you actually get a psychological boost, uh, which I don't want to downplay the effectiveness of that because I think psychology and, and essentially the placebo effect is is super important with these kind of things. A hundred percent. And it's not, it's not placebo. It's a, it's a physiological effect. This is, you know, remember when we talked about in the beginning about uh, cerebral oxygenation. So if you're used to your brain being essentially starved of oxygen and then it's initially it's starved and then it adapts, like you adapted and like, you know, you said you feel much more comfortable at altitude. When you go down to, um, to train or to race closer to sea level with a higher oxygen concentration, it's like putting on an oxygen mask, right? So you feel there's that, there's that euphoria that you feel from uh, from your brain now getting more oxygen that's a very you know pleasant sensation and that's sort of what's happening when you're when you're training or racing at lower altitude so based on this conversation i should feel like a million bucks when i finish my ironman race in maryland <laughs> if i don't i'm going to blame this entirely on you and mostly my Deal. training <laughs> <laughs> no i'm like i said we we will we'll have to have uh, and i've been thinking about episode um i've been thinking about andrew's ironman in early yes. october we'll, we'll yes, do that yes that I well, depending on how it goes, I may or may not want to talk about it. <laughs> fair point. Fair point. Um, yeah. So there's, uh, yeah, definitely, the, you get the increased uh, training stimulus from just being able to push your muscles further and harder. Uh, so that responds with, the, or your body responds by strengthening them. Um, but you would think, okay, what if we have even more oxygen? What if we supersaturate ourselves? And there have been, there's, there's limited research in this, but there have been a few studies that have looked at this. Um, so the the boundary for this is oxygen toxicity. So if anyone's a diver and has looked into this, they've definitely heard about oxygen toxicity because basically being exposed to too high of a partial pressure of oxygen um, can, can be extremely damaging to your body. It can result in fainting. Um, it can result in eye damage, retinal detachment, which is a pretty, pretty serious sounding thing and in, yeah. in reality a very serious thing. Um, so divers have to be extremely careful about this and they have a, um, I forget what it's called. Uh, it's, it's basically just a, a timer for the amount of time they spend under certain pressures or certain concentrations of oxygen. So the partial pressure of oxygen is essentially it's volume fraction. So the amount of oxygen in the air times the, um, the, the pressure at a, a given altitude. So if, for example, if you're at hundred KPA, which is roughly sea level, um, and you're 21% oxygen, you've got the 0.21 bar or 21 kPa uh, partial pressure. If you exceed 0.3 to 0.5, which you have to be under forced oxygen environment to do that, but if you exceed that for more than, <clears throat> I think, around 96 hours, um, that's when you start to run into problems. If you're in a compressed air environment, 
so hyperbaric, um, where say it's higher than atmospheric pressure, say you're under two bar of pure oxygen, um, they th this can actually cause problems in as little as uh, 45 minutes, uh, where you start oh, wow. to have like very significant issues. And and this is why divers have to be very careful because if they repeatedly go to to um, to very low depths, they're they're breathing this high pressure of oxygen to essentially to fill their lungs. Because when you fill your lungs, you have to push out the water that would be trying to crush you. Right. Um, so right. you have to fill your lungs at a higher pressure when you're diving. So <laughs> as I was digging into this, um, there's some interesting gas mixtures that divers can use. The one that stood out was a mixture of uh, hydrogen and pure oxygen, which to me sounds like oh, a terrible like, idea. Yeah, you're you're like you're you're like the Hindenburg underwater. You have <laughs> yeah, your fuel and your oxidizer all in one tank. That's oh, yeah. Well, how, yeah, how does it not react and anyway, that's that's a side, that's a side topic. So, yeah, I just found that funny. I thought I'd mention that for the sake of a quick laugh. So, I don't recommend breathing a pure mixture of oxygen and hydrogen, especially if you're a smoker. Um, no, I think so that, that would I would, I would assume in. that it would like self self ignite. I don't know. Anyway, I don't know what the yep. what the the heat of uh, the, the the you know the enthalpy of that reaction is. Um, nor nor is it super relevant to our <laughs> to our conversation. No, not at all. The main point there is that uh, just breathing additional high pressure oxygen isn't necessarily beneficial from what I've seen because you are limited by, typically you're limited by how much blood or how much oxygen your blood can deliver to the muscles. Right. Yeah. Th that makes sense. But those are, those are extreme cases in, Absolutely. in you know, uh, high, uh, hyperbaric cases for divers, not so much for endurance athletes going from altitude to sea level. But Andrew, did you want to talk about FTP testing at altitude? Yeah. Uh, the only thing I wanted to quickly talk about was FTP test, um, just how my own experience with that. Right. So on that topic, I would expect that, you know, your, um, again, your aerobic performance to suffer in proportion to the reduction of oxygen. So um, depending on your protocol for, for FTP testing, but if you were doing any kind of critical power testing where you had a significant aerobic component, obviously, um, you would expect a, a, de a decrease in performance um, that parallels the decrease in um oxygen availability. Uh, and this is why when you mentioned your that you did a ramp test, I wonder if you would have to have a um, an extra correction factor for the ramp test. Um, because obviously, at the end of the ramp test, you're very much um, you're very much glycolytic. Uh, well, you're still you're still primarily aerobic, but glycolysis contributes uh, more uh, at the very end of the ramp test, obviously, but since you're well above uh, threshold power at that point. And I'm wondering if that um, glycolytic adaptation to altitude, um, because your oxygen reduced, uh, would would give you kind of a false high number for a ramp test. Now, this is pure conjecture on my part. I actually don't know. I'd have to think about it and talk to some smarter people first. Yeah, your your logic lines up with more or less what I was thinking, that it would bias the, the glycolytic system when you're dealing with a ramp test just because it's shorter. So even though I hate doing it, the 20-minute FTP test would probably be more accurate for higher altitudes. You can do critical power testing. I think critical power testing is really nice um, where you can take really two, any two durations, as long as one duration is like, longer than 10 minutes and the other duration is kind of like the test that Tilbury Davis, uh, you know, the, his durations and the durations I use for critical power testing are four minutes and 12 minutes uh, where you're, you know, you're trying to keep uh, highest, highest 
power possible for that duration of time with obviously a long recovering between the two. And then there are a whole slew of online calculators that'll tell you what your critical power, which roughly maps to threshold power, um, what your critical power will be from those two values. All right. So you had a question then from, from one of our listeners. Yes. So, uh, Frank Brennan, who uh, used to coach and uh, who used to ride indoors with me quite a bit when I had the uh, the studio, the lab, um, he uh, replied to uh, my post um, on the episode where we had Scott Cooper talking about power meters. And uh, here's what Frank says. Very interesting discussion. I'm wondering if there could be a follow-up conversation on how to use a power meter out on the road. I've trained with power on a CompuTrainer, but then how do you translate that to the outdoors? So I think so that's I a think great... That's... Go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, I was, I think, about to say the exact same thing that you were, that it's a great question <laughs> and very relevant. Uh, the, the biggest difference is that the indoor scenario is a much more controlled space, right? Where even if you're, you know, if you have a smart trainer, like a compu trainer or like the stack Halcyon, huh? um, you have <laughs> the ability to not only measure power, but also control it, which is excellent. Um, but even if it just have a dummy trainer and a power meter um, and you, you can control your wattage through just the gearing and the cadence, obviously, and you're basically the rear wheel speed. Uh, so you have a, a lot of control over the environment in that scenario. So it's much easier to execute workouts. Um, make sure that your power is in the desired range for the desired amount of time. Uh, when you head outside, obviously these things change. So there are far more influences than on, on what you can do and how well you can keep power steady than indoors. Uh, obviously elevation, um, wind, uh, traffic conditions, red lights, right? So they all will affect your ability to really accurately execute uh, a workout design. So what my approach is when I'm giving folks advice on how to execute workouts, if they're riding them outdoors, uh, I kind of I look at it two ways. So for, for one thing, I'll say, if you're trying to do a, a, a complicated, especially, or, or a very structured workout, I would encourage you to do it indoors. You know, if you're looking to do quality work, um, especially if you live in the city, uh, on the bike, you it's very hard to do. So uh, there are exceptions, but it's generally very hard to do. So I encourage folks to stay indoors and do it on their trainer where they can control the environment. If you are riding outdoors and you're doing, let's say, a structured workout, um, there are some workouts that lend themselves well to, let's say, hill repeats. So uh, riding hills, for instance, there you have generally a lower speed, which means that you have a little bit more control over power with the right kind of cadence and gearing combination again. Um, but um, there's not too many other, other opportunities to do a really good structured workout um, in a busy urban environment. Uh, with longer endurance rides, there is a good opportunity to do those, of course, outside. And there's also a, a specificity case to be made that, you know, you're not racing indoors, you're racing outdoors. Um, <laughs> so those longer rides or those endurance rides uh, can certainly be done outdoors and should be done outdoors, in my opinion, for at least, uh, you know, when the weather cooperates. Uh, and there you just have to accept the fact that you are you're no longer going to be hyper precise. So if your coach is asking you to ride at, you know, let's say 70% or 68% of, of threshold power, you know, you you have to, in your mind, kind of open up that range. So it's no longer going to be 70%. It's going to be, let's say 65 to 75%. And to be perfectly honest, that makes no 
practical difference. If you are 65 to 75% versus being spot on at 70% with a smart meter, with a smart trainer, excuse me, holding your power super steady, very little, very little difference in the uh, effect of that training session. My only caution would be is if your route is particularly hilly, that it's extra important to um, watch your power on the climbs. So uh, being able to use your gears, obviously, and and controlling your cadence so that you more or less uh, stick to your power targets is important. And it's more challenging to do when you're when you're outdoors compared to indoors. Excellent explanation. Uh, you did all the work there, so I can kind of sit back and, and let that go. Um, the only thing I would add to that that's very minor is riding outdoors gives you, uh, and this isn't really related to power, but uh, it gives you that extra benefit of being able to practice nutrition and hydration uh, because you have to carry everything with you. You have to figure out what you need. So not power related, but very relevant to the outdoor training aspect. 100%. And you have to reach for that bottle and reach for that gel when your bike's moving and not crash into anything. There's there's a yeah, a huge value of uh, of outdoor training. Um you know, with the caveat of uh, of it being less predictable. So you have to basically to summarize what I said is, you know, understand that you're not going to be as precise and be okay with that and, you know, 8 times out of 10 that's totally fine. Um and then also be disciplined not disciplined enough to roughly stick to your power targets on climbs. One of the things that I like to do, and this is something I've started doing only recently and prescribing it recently, is if you're riding a particularly hilly route and you're trying to do um, kind of a lower end um, aerobic workout, what I like to do is on those hills, I actually gear up and do low cadence work. So this has the, the benefit of doing some strength, um, some muscular strength uh, work on the bike, as well as uh, there's some evidence that it reduces your um, your glycolytic maximum your vla max is, is which is what inside would call it um, and that is relevant for most uh endurance athletes i say that carefully i'll have to give that a try because i've got a longer workout scheduled for the weekend so uh, i think a five-hour ride is what i've got planned so yep. um, there's not a lot of flat roads around here <laughs> go figure next to the mountains also, low cadence uh, keeps you. Um, it allows you to to keep your power in check, right? So if you're if you're in a lower lowish gear and low cadence, then you're you know you're much less likely to not blow your power target because there's some climbs where just to you know keep the bike upright, you have to go a certain speed, and uh, um, you know l- uh, doing it at a lower cadence um, is is useful. And it's 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 got specificity um, applications or specificity uh, utility. If your uh, if your race is hilly, which I imagine Baltimore is not, Maryland is not. Maryland, no, it is. Uh, it's it's fairly flat. <laughs> it's uh, pan flat, I think, is the description I've often heard. So, yeah, I'm not doing a lot of specificity in terms of climbing mountains right now, but uh, <laughs> that's okay. I'll be going down to sea level, and that'll make it easier. And you'll feel like a monster. I hope so. <laughs> and we can talk about that possibly after uh, after I complete the race and after I've uh, psychologically recovered. Um, so let's wrap it up here. Uh, everyone, thank you very much for uh, tuning in. Uh, if you like us, please do tell your friends. This is how uh, we spread the word about this podcast. Also, rate and review us on iTunes. That really goes a long way to um, to helping us reach a broader audience. And also do what Frank did. Um, be like Frank. 
ask us questions because it's very easy for for Andrew and I, who I think on on many levels have a similar uh, way of thinking about these things, to kind of get into our own uh, little silo. So we want to know what you want to know because we the corollaries we don't know what you don't know. So if you want us to talk about something um, that is endurance sport related, uh, we want to hear from you, and uh, more than likely we'll do an episode on it. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great great thing to toss out there. Um, this episode was particular fun for me, so I really enjoyed researching it, and hopefully, some of the ideas that come in are going to be similar. Thanks for listening, and uh, that's it for for me at X3. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>